Hello and welcome to the Spotlight Podcast with me, Kristen Coots. In this episode, I'm excited to bring you a conversation I recently had with Robert Softly Gale. Robert's been in the arts for over 20 years. He's based in Scotland and is an actor, writer and advocate of equality for access to the arts, particularly when it comes to disabled people, be they artists or audience. He's also the artistic director at Birds of Paradise Theatre Company, who are based in Glasgow. And we're happy he took the time out to chat to us about his career, his work, and theatre in general. Can I start off by asking you how you got into acting? Yeah, I mean, it was around about 20 years ago. I was at university at the time, at Glasgow Uni, and I up until that point in my life, I had been, been vocal a little bit in amateur seeker. My family were big in Canberra in Scotland. But being a younger simple guy in the 90s, there wasn't really a place for me in that. You know, I would do work backstage, I would do sort of props and tech stuff like that. A little bit of directing, but there wasn't a role for me on stage. So we got uni and I've been doing a little bit of public speaking about disability and education. And someone came along to one of those who worked for a company in Edinburgh called Seeker Workshop and they said, give a thought about becoming an actor. We are auditioning for a resident company. Why don't you apply? Now, looking back, it seems pretty ridiculous. <laughs> I went, yeah, 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 I will apply for that. But I was cranky, so I was pretty cocky. And pretty, <laughs> I thought, why not? So I applied for the job. I went for an addition. So fucking like ever done an addition in my life. And, and I did, <laughs> like a famous Scottish play called The Steamy. And there's a monologue called, Isn't it wonderful to be a woman? For me, that's not a 20-year-old people guy get up and get, Isn't it wonderful to be a woman? And I think that way they remembered me. And I got I was going to say, how did that, how was, what yeah. was the reaction to well, it? How did well, that yeah, I think they were surprised, but also I knew the play quite well, so I could give it quite a good spin. And so the yeah, the they like the gig I got the job and that was like one year resident contract. And then from there I made contacts, I built up a network. And I think I I know we all see this, but I think I always thought well, I'll keep doing this until I get found out until I you know, until someone says, Nah, you're not that great, you know, bugger off. <laughs> And no one's done that yet, so I just keep going. And Long may it continue. Yeah, whenever that day comes, I'll work out something else to do. <laughs> well, it sounds like you, you keep pretty busy, though. I mean, not only are you an actor, you're also a writer, theatre maker, artistic director. You know, you've got a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I wondered... Um, you know, what kind of inspires you when you're creating your work or, like, you know, putting those different hats on? Um, inspires me. I think there's something about 
I, I caught quite a lot of it, the stories of disabled people and the fact that in our, in our culture in the UK, those stories haven't been told that much. You know, so I, I guess for me it's about telling those stories in new ways that are interesting and entertaining and etc. Et and that's quite quite vague and quite, you know, meta, but I guess that's the point I keep going back and with every show that I do, with everything that I write, I'm just telling stories that haven't been told before. I think what we bad in the UK, especially for telling the same stories that were told for hundreds of years, you know, I love written by white middle class middle aged men and we've heard it over before which I think what I'm doing bring a different perspective, bring a yeah. different experience. So that's what I keep going back to. And that can be things like shows about disabled drag queens or about that, that experience of Alan Brown that went in just shows like everything else in the future Scotland, or you know, the stories are quite wide ranging, but they always go back to that core of the stories of disabled people, of what they could be. Yeah. And then, well, on that subject, so you're artistic director at Birds of Paradise Theatre Company. Um, so for anyone who might not be familiar with them, can you tell us a little bit about them and about your journey into how you joined them? Yeah. So Birds of Paradise was started in 1993, so almost 30 years ago. Obviously, I was far too young at that point. But it came out of the, the city of culture was in Glasgow, in 1990, and like any city culture, there was a lot of activity around the time, and disabled people were getting involved in acting stuff and secret stuff. And then when all of that died away, a group of disabled adults got together and said, How could we keep going? How could we keep developing our craft? So they formed Book of Paradise as a way of developing the skills. So they could be started as a, a training resource in a way, it's a way for, for, for disabled adults to develop acting skills and develop um, grammar skills. And from there it sort of grew and developed and, and got, got kind of place where it is today. So now the company, yeah, like almost 30 years old, we are a quite a big producing seeker company in Scotland who, and we work with disabled and non-disabled actors and artists, people backstage as well. But we also do a lot of development work with young disabled people and older disabled people who want to, again, develop their skills as seeker makers. And then lastly, we work with other companies around Scotland, around the UK, who want to include disabled artists in their work so we support them to develop their capacity to be inclusive. And is that kind of 
done through like workshops? Is it sort of going on site? Is it them coming to you? I'm just interested in how that conversation happens and then, you know, goes into action. Um, like any company, we will do anything that we can get paid for. <laughs> Whatever you want to make it work, we'll make it work. I guess I'll go over bread and butter and surrender about disability quality training. So we'll right. go out to companies and deliver to their staff, to the fire staff and to their creative teams. I saw a disability quality training package. And that quite often can start a, a conversation about what they can be doing to better include disabled people in their um, organizations, but also in their, in their um, creative teams. Mm-hmm. But also from that could be some bespoke work where a company may ask us to come in to work with them on a longer scale to look at how they can be more inclusive and how they can be, how they can build that into their policies and practices, right. things like that. So it can be a wide range of things, or it can be very specific, like we quite often get asked to look at an organization a website to look at how that can be made more accessible. So yeah, there's, we, like I say, if... It's a whole range of stuff. If we can get paid for it, we, we'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> we can do a little advertisement on the end of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so going, talking more about Birds of Paradise and about the kind of work that they put on. So how do the productions come about? Yeah, that's a good one, because I think when they comment with misconceptions of the company is that we've got a sort of collective of disabled actors who we keep going back to. We always make the joke that we haven't got disabled people in the cupboard somewhere that you we can put at any random point. It's, it's not that. We, we're a small core company of five people. So like myself, the executive director, Mary Taylor, we'll get a producer, we'll get uh, an education, outreach worker. But then when we go to production, we bring on board actors, production managers, case managers, etc. And the productions come about in a variety of ways, but usually, there's an idea that we come up with as a company that we start to develop through workshops or through development weeks and then we'll spend a number of years working with artists to develop ideas and then eventually take it into production. It really it differs from show to show. Um, <coughs> quite often, I've been the writer on the show, so when that happens, obviously, I'm involved in that capacity, but but usually also directing. But our current show, Go Make written by a writer that I know very well and have known for a long time, uh, Rob Drummond, we started speaking about five years ago about a play looking at disability benefits. But doing that in a way that was quite 
very really quick and quite all I've got humor and things like that. And Rob was bringing to that really well and, and went away and worked with us and making the piece. So, yeah, we really could think of the show and how that, how, what works best for that show. And is that what you're currently in rehearsal for at the moment? Yeah, so we're now in week two rehearsal. We've got another two weeks rehearsal and then we're going to bring up some weeks. So it's clear. And this is a, it's a one hour and 48 minute show. So it's quite, mm-hmm. quite a big two acts. But it's a great, it's a great piece. We also, as a company, we look to making our films as accessible as possible to the audience. So we're building audio description, BSL interpretation and captions into the fabric of the show. So <laughs> with the show that's been a, a big task of making it so that the BSL interpreter is on stage, the captions are built into the set, the audio description built into the script. And all of these things obviously adds more complexity to the piece. Yeah. But ultimately also make it, I think, but a better more audience piece. as well, yeah. I guess. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Okay, and then for a show like that when you're, you know, as you were saying, it's a beast. <laughs> um, so how do you go about casting? Um, casting quite an interesting process for us. Quite often we will cast and then build a show around the people that we've got. So we did a show back in 2016 called Purpose of Movements. And that was about four guys with terrible quality. You know, looking at their masculinity and their impairment and how that worked together. So we got the four guys together, first of all, and then we built this show around them. This show is different. The show, as I say, was written by a playwright and the um, casting spec was developed with him. So we then had to go out and find those individuals. And I, I won't lie to you, finding disabled actors with specific impairments who are able to, to hold up a production and it's quite a big challenge so we spent maybe three or four months looking for our cast and getting the right people together we 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 kept we kept going back to people and kept looking and we eventually got there there's a great team at Bop who bring all of that work together and we just kept looking for right people it sounds like quite an undertaking i guess when there's like you know if it's not made easy for you to find the people and you want to make sure they're the right people obviously um and when you were saying there's only would you say there's five of you yeah yeah <laughs> quite yeah something cast and we're very passionate about making you know the highest quality work that we can and no and no everybody can that you know nobody's looking to make work that isn't great. But I think because we are, if you like, representing disabled art, we feel a sort of added 
pressure of not working. I think some things the audience will come along thinking, oh, isn't it lovely these disabled people are making work? And that's not the, it's not what we want them to go away with. Yeah. So we, um, yeah, we're very passionate about making sure that we get the best people that we can. And then, um, if someone, for example, you don't have your famous cupboard, um, but if someone wanted to sort of maybe were interested in working with you, like how would they go about finding out what you're casting for? Yes, I mean, we are quite a small company, so quite often we will be casting once a year, or maybe twice a year. So it's quite hard to see you keep checking back or it's not that often. But yeah. I think you get in touch, you send us your information. And, uh, you know, we love having conversations with people and finding out who's out there. And quite often that then doesn't translate into anything solid for, for you to hate. But if we think about people, we will keep going back to them to, to try to make it work. Um, I'm just skipping back to something you spoke about earlier. So if you we talk about making theatre accessible um, for audiences, but, you know, so how would... A, do you have any top tips off the top of your head of how a theatre maker could, you know, just some things that they should be thinking about to make their work more accessible, both for the company who are going to be in the show, but also for the audience? I mean... If you start with the audience, the thing that I always say is that any theatre maker, any director, their the core job is to make an idea accessible. You know, you get an idea in your head and you begin to put that cover until you tell someone. So you're making it accessible in telling someone. Now all we do is I kind of take that further. So we take it and we look at people who are blind or who are impaired or people who are deaf or, or hard of hearing. We look at, well, how do we make it accessible to them? It's not, it's not some magic or some great skill. It's about going, okay, you can't hear that. How do we make it accessible to you? There's no easy answer to that subject. Sometimes it's complex. And, and quite often we use a lot of humour in our work and a lot of comedy. And that when you're... That, that's great. But when you're also giving it in PSL and in captions and when people might not get a visual gag, etc, etc. So there's a lot because not work out how to make a joke accessible, for example. Yeah. So that is just about, yeah, it's just about taking the idea, making it work for as many people as possible. You'll, you'll never make it completely accessible because some people will need a given thing that will be the opposite of other people, but even do the best you can in what's right. in there. In terms of making it accessible for the, the cast and the crew, 
There's nothing confusing. Before anybody comes to work for Bob, they get an, an access um, probably a questionnaire. And that is, I think there's now 40 questions around mm-hmm. access that we ask people so we can gather that information because we can't respond to things we don't know about. So yeah. that's sort of the first step. The second step is first day in the rehearsal room, first thing we do is get on a cable and we ask people what they require to do their best work in that room. And that might be about disability, but also might be about dietary requirements or um, heat levels or childcare. It could be anything. But I think basing it around what you need to do your best work is, is putting the onus on we're here to do a job and, yeah. and how can we make that work the best it can be. I mean, that makes complete sense to me. Yeah. I feel like that should be a thing that happens in every well, workplace. Well, that's what we always do. Nothing we do is rocket science. It's, you know, we're, but it's doing it. We're just doing it, yeah. We're just yeah. trying it. And we make a lot of mistakes, but we, we don't always get it right. But we hold our hands up and go, we, we didn't get that right, and we'll, we'll try to go back on next time. And that also, I think, is a big part of what we do, yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned it a little bit there. So um, obviously you're an advocate of equality of access to the arts. Um, you know, it's from, like, a, you know, for disabled artists. Um, but also you're a father. Um, I know that childcare is often an issue that actors face because you know it's it's a it's a creative difficult job when you're also having parental responsibilities so I just wondered you know how how are you balancing that <laughs> um it's a big question I yeah, know yeah I think the pandemic has been really interesting because my, my kids are quite young so I had a good couple of years of not having to balance that because mm-hmm. I was at home all the time with them now that we're back into the room and back making work, it is a real challenge. I think, yeah, I think it's about knowing that you get very intense periods where their mum is going to take over the, the screen and then we'll go back to less intense work where I can take more of the screen. So that's quite a big part of it. But also, there's no... Yeah, I think of course there's the question about how we run a rehearsal period. You know, we're going, in the UK, we're going to see rehearsal periods for so long that we've forgotten why we do it that way. Mm-hmm. And there's no requirement to do it that way. Now, obviously, there's a, a limit to a bank of money and we're trying to make things happen for the least amount of money that we can, but there's other ways to do things that can speak out more, that can make it more accessible to people who have problems and just to people in general. I mean, 
None of us make our best work when we are exhausted. You also, why do yes. we keep doing it over and over again? Yeah. I think there's a long way to go with childcare. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I don't have any answers for it. I just, as a new mother myself, I'm, I'm feeling the pain of it. Yeah, and I think a lot of that in geek about culture. And we'll get kind of culture in the arts of you have to work every hour you got. I mean, we do this at, you know, 8.30 at night because that's when we can fit it in. So, you know, it's, we, it's how, we, how we work. But, yeah, we don't have to work this way. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of bigger conversations, isn't yeah. Like yeah. You start off talking about this and it sort of snowballs and you're like, oh, there's so much and what you that, hear, that should be, could be done. And what you hear, I think we've got the answers to it, but we need to start looking for them. Well, at least start talking about it as well, I guess, because, I mean, there's a lot of people who must be in the same situation, right? Completely. Um, so I'm jumping around a little bit, but... um. As a touring company as well, which Birds Paradise is, um, so you take work to theatre venues up and down the country, across Europe. Um, so what challenges does that bring in terms of like the logistics of touring when you have all of this stuff you've got to think about? So like with the captions, the BSL interpreters, um, you know, access to the stage itself, the audience. So... Um, yeah, so how do you how do you work that all out? It's a nightmare. I mean, it's <laughs> everything. Because at least we're on home soil, we sort of know what we're having to work with. But if we're going somewhere we haven't been to before, we are going to the unknown. Quite often we try to send someone ahead of time to find out how accessible a place is, because even if you ask people if they're accessible, quite often they'll say yes, but they won't know. Either we're like, yes we are, you get there and there's two steps, and they go, oh yeah, we forgot about those two steps, or you know it, so it is, it's a real challenge. And also bring audience development point of view, we're having to develop an audience and get their crust, get their um, confidence when we haven't got control over what's going on. So yeah, it's a real challenge. I think we are now getting better at it because we work with people who are quite big partners. We go to venues that are bigger, that, that we can have a bit more reliability about what they can offer. Um, but it's a real challenge. It's a real feat to get them to, to get venues to really engage with us as a company, work out that the access is not some extra. it's core to what we do. And um, that's a real challenge. So it's, what are the sort of the main issues you're seeing when it comes to sort of inclusivity of um, artists, disabled artists? I think, you know, a lot of theatres now have physical access to the auditorium, but backstage 
It's still pretty accessible. It's not always, but, but quite a lot. Quite a lot of the older venues are quite inaccessible by kids. So that's the obvious one. Um, and then beyond that, I do think it's something big audience development question because the way that we do captions and BSL and audio description isn't complex, but if people go know about it, then they're not going to come. And even if they do know about it, they know they don't believe it. So it's about building up relationships, building up trust, all of that sort of stuff to, to make, to give people the reassurance that what they will receive will be as accessible as we can make it within what we can control. And how do you balance, so when if you're promoting a show, how do you balance like the promotion of it as a show and then balance it with, you know, this is accessible for, you know, all of these people. Um, you know, how, how do you get that level? Does it just come part and parcel? I think it's all part of the, the same. I mean, if you, if you like, all marketing can come to the show, it'll work for you, you know? And all yeah. we're going to do is add more information to that to say it works for you even if you are blind or visually impaired, even if you are deaf and hard of hearing, it'll still work for you. And quite often that's things like doing a BSL trailer so that um, deaf people on social media can get information about the show in their own language. And that gives them reassurance. It's about engaging with local organisations to get the message out there. It's a lot. It's a lot. You know, it's a lot of work. But there's no point in putting something on if people don't come. So, yeah. you know, you just have to get on with it. Um, we, well, not myself, but a colleague spoke to you a few years ago at the Fringe. Um, I believe there was a video. Um, sorry, we were talking a little, a little on similar subjects then. Um, have you noticed anything, any nice big changes, any positive changes <laughs> that's happened when it comes to representation and inclusion? Um, I think, it, yeah, I think, what was it? Maybe we spoke to you four years ago, yeah. maybe five. <laughs> I mean, the girl with being changes, you keep looking at it, the, the National Theatre in London, for example, did a, a normal heart last year that had Liz Carr in the cast, who's a great disabled actor. Yeah. She then got an Olivier Award for that role, so that's huge. That's yeah. massive. The National Theatre right now, today, are doing another show called um, Oliver's um, Again About Disability, so that shows that, that that show they did last year wasn't a one-off. It was, it was an ongoing commitment to equality and access. And that, that gives you a lot of reassurance as well. If you look at TV and film, the people that goes under there, they're not there enough, they're not there all the time, but they're there um, in a way that they weren't five years ago. So yeah. that's definitely progress. 
People are coming to us and talking to us a lot now. Where five years ago we were going to them, having to get them to <laughs> to speak to us. So that power balance definitely changed. Have we still got a long way to go? Yes, of course we have. But it's definitely there. The 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 value of role models like Glenn Carlick, Francesca Martinez, who wrote all of us, cannot be underestimated because yeah. by them being at the vanguard, we then get a lot more people thinking, thinking, oh great, I could get involved in the arts, I could become an actor. And, and then it all, it all rolls on from there. Mm. And what this leads me nicely on to my next question is, you know, what's your what's your vision for the future of the arts and disabled artists? I'm like putting my arms up in like big yeah big movements here. <laughs> what's the grand vision? Yes. I mean this this something a bit gone, but I think it is doing what we're doing. But just doing more of it, doing it bigger, taking it to more places, getting it seen by more people. I think that's all we can do. You know, we can't we can't do anything other than what we know. And that is again go back to what I think about telling our stories, about getting our place and culture carved out. And yeah. so yeah, I think it is just about seeing you know, now especially in, in London now Seeing a black actor on stage is completely unremarkable. It's just part of the course. So when we get to the same place with the table actors, mm-hmm. and that'll be another great milestone of, of progress. But in the same way that there's still black theatre makers and directors and writers making work about their experience, there will always need to be Disabled theatre makers and writers and directors making work about our experience. That will never go away, will never become assimilated. And I don't think we want to be either. I don't think that would be a good thing. But we will become part of the fabric of, of, yeah. of culture in the UK and the world. <laughs> <laughs> You do get like a really big evil cackle now. Yeah, quite. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, so you're working at Glasgow, um, yeah. and you're also on the board of the National Theatre of Scotland. I, I am. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so can you talk a bit about what the art scene is like in Scotland? Um, obviously I'm biased because <laughs> <laughs> I think we're great, um, but I think there's something really special about Scotland because we're quite small. We all know each other. When you've been in the industry for 20 years, like I have, you've met most people and you know most people. So we all get on pretty well with the job. We we work together a lot. There's a lot of cooperation, a lot of co-production of work. And that feels very positive. I also, I, I also think because we're getting from the things, 
the social focus is going of yeah. innovative work of new work of of yeah, just giving things a go. The the mentally programming work in Scotland. Um yeah, it's I think for me it's like a part of my identity being Scotland being Scottish and and like I said before I use humour a lot in my work. A lot of the humour that I use quite sort of West Coast Scottish Galway humour. So it's very much a part of what I do is put put the Scottish disabled experience on stage and, and that's a lot of fun for me. Yeah. yeah. Have you noticed that there's sort of more opportunities for actors and theatre makers in Scotland now than perhaps ever there was before? Um, I think there are. I think there's always the temptation for actors to go to London because there's a lot of work there and there's a lot of um, opportunities there. But the community that we've got in Scotland of companies and makers of artists it's really exciting because I think a lot of people either get grown back to Scotland or just stay here because they like it, they like that way of working. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it's quite interesting because where I was up at the Fringe, um, we are seeing my family because they live in Edinburgh, but also interviewing Spotlight members, seeing how their shows were going, how the experience has been for them. It was quite interesting that quite a few of them who were Scottish and continue to be based in Scotland and are making, now making conscious decisions to stay there. Um, whereas, you know, they freely admitted that in, in the past they probably would have gone to London. But I think there's, well, from, from what I was being told, there seems like there's more more productions are coming up north, not just for theatre, but also for film and TV. Um, and also, it's probably cheaper to live there. <laughs> much, much, much. <laughs> yeah, with the dawn of, you know, with self-taping coming to, like, full fruition now, you know, that maybe opens up some opportunities for auditions that maybe weren't there before. So I think it's it's quite an interesting time, I think. And I also think theatre... Like, it's, it's so local, you know, we make work in Glasgow, and it's not that the work about Glasgow, because it's not, but it's informed by that experience that makes it work in Glasgow. And what I love is we then take that work around Scotland and around the UK and around the world, you know. We make a show in 2018 called my, my left right foot, and that was a big musical, a big comedy. And that they went to Japan, and to sit in an audience in Japan, and once people laughed at the same jokes that people were laughing at in Glasgow, it's a very humbling experience. You realise that we're all pretty similar. You know, we, yeah. all, we all laugh at the same sort of stuff. We all enjoy the King sort of stories. And that, I think that's a really positive, universal truth that we can hold on to. And I have two more questions for you. So the first one is, what's your ambition as an actor? Wow. I know. 
It's like a job interview, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I get the job at the end. Yes, 100%. My ambition is that, I tell you, I've done a lot of snooker, and I, I love doing snooker. And for a long time, I think that I didn't like doing TV or film. And then just at the start of the pandemic, I did a BBC film, a monologue called Crip Kill. And there were six monologues. They went out on the BBC and they, they did pretty well. We get two BAFCA nominations, we won other awards. And I quite enjoyed that. So, so maybe it's got a little bit more TV and film. So maybe you're looking for the screen. <laughs> it's a different skill that I didn't have before, that I still haven't got, but that I want to develop, want to work on. Um, so, then, so I guess with that, what other ambitions can I have? I mean, just to do it more, to like, like, it's a, it's a massive privilege to walk out on the stage and have 200, 2,000, whatever number of people pay the hand money to listen to you waffle on for a couple of hours. <laughs> you know, like that. it's, a, it's a massive privilege. So if I can keep doing that, if I can keep being asked to do that, then great. Um, yeah, I'm very humbled by it. Okay. And finally, um, what are you currently watching, reading or listening to that you'd recommend to other people? I always like to finish this one because I, I always enjoy a recommendation. Um, I get, because I'm grabbing quite a lot to get to rehearsals, I'm back and listen to a lot of podcasts. And, I, you know, I listen to the ones that are all okay. Well known like this American life or nineteen yeah. percent invisible or those. But I there's another one called uh, criminal that I love because it's people committing very extreme crimes. And I think there's something about me that I love well, I love telling stories about people, but I love hearing stories about people being weird beyond <laughs> and then got that so well. So yeah, a podcast called Criminal I recommend. But I also think podcast in general like I know I know this means things can be old because most young people are going, yeah, podcasts are part of what we do. But I think I came to podcast quite late and I just think they are the best thing ever. Picking cues and get really neat subjects, really yeah. interesting stories, and that you've never got by listening to the review or whatever. So, yeah, more podcasts. More. There's a lot more creative freedom with a podcast, oh, I feel, yeah. than the radio. <laughs> and also, you can get podcasts from anywhere in the world and think about any sort of person, and yeah, all of that I love. Yeah. Perfect. And on that note, thank you so much for your time, Robert. I really thank appreciate you, it. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>